We're coming to the end of our journey in the book of Nehemiah, and uh, it's uh, it's a very interesting ending, but a very helpful ending in many ways because it's very realistic. I don't know if you've ever had the uh, situation in which you bought something, and it started really well. <laughs> it was a, a great buy. You were really pleased with it, and as time went on, you were really disappointed. I seem to have this thing with the vacuum cleaners. You know, they, they start well, you know, they clean well, good suction, uh, really easy to, and, and, you know, just as time goes on, initially you had these uh, settings, these power settings that would have absolutely ripped the carpet off. And by, by, you know, in a year's time, you know, you put it on the power suction and you're thinking, is anything even happening? And you get so disappointed. You, uh, you have the same, sadly, with relationships. Uh, and you would have been into it, and, and, and we can be lighthearted about it and think about relationships of dating somebody that you, you really fancied and you thought they were the best person in the world. And, you know, three months down the line, you're thinking, you know, I, 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 I really don't like this person. We don't get on very well. <laughs> and tragically, you get married to somebody like that. You know, and it's... 15, 20 years time and you thought you knew the person and you end up absolutely hating each other. You start a business with somebody. It's your best friend, fellow visionary. You're thinking, we're going to change the world. We're going to really launch this business and do really well. And several years down the line, you have to cross the road on the other side because you can't even stand the sight of them. You'd fallen out so badly with them. Spiritually, it can happen too. Some of us can have a great start and things can go really, really well in our life. And you and I would know so many stories of people that we had grown up in the church with or people that we've known come to God and have a great testimony and even sometimes be used by God in ministry in an incredible way. And as bright as the beginning was, so dark is the ending, and so tragic, such stories. Well, the book of Nehemiah is a little bit like that. It starts with a sense of sadness, but also marked with a great hope, because the Spirit of God stirs up Nehemiah's heart to go and rebuild the broken walls of Jerusalem, and it ends up quite disappointing, really. And to put it into context, what is happening, we're going to camp in chapter 13 in Nehemiah, as we end the book. But really, Nehemiah had finished the rebuilding of the wall, and then he invited Ezra, and together with Ezra, they worked at the rebuilding of the spiritual life, or the spiritual identity of the nation, because actually that was the ultimate purpose of what Nehemiah was trying to do. The walls were just part of the story, but not the main focus. But then Nehemiah has to return home. So he spent probably about 12 years in the rebuilding and then he returns home, home, in inverted commas, in, in Susa to finish his job, being the cupbearer. And then in his retirement age, he returns back to Jerusalem. And what he finds is really disappointing because there's a real change, there's a real contrast in a negative way from what he left with a revival that was happening when Ezra read the law, when the people committed themselves once again in covenant to worship God, to serve God, to keep his commandments. And where you end up 
is a very disappointing place. So let's begin to read in chapter 13, uh, beginning with verse 6. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometimes later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back in their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Old Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shalemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have done so faithfully for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing the grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing it all into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre, who lived in Jerusalem, were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon the city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. Good biblical text there. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. 
I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I hit some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like that that Solomon, king of Israel, had sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He loved, he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joyada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood in designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me for favor, O oh my God. This is not a happy ending. This is not a happy ending, but it's a helpful ending. Because the reality in my life and your life is that it very often can take the same trajectory in terms of our spiritual lives. We start well. We can go through times of revival and renewal. We can stand in front of others making big statements and people can even look up to us. And because we are not watchful, because we are not obedient, because we allow compromise to come into our lives, we drift and lose our identity. And this is what had happened to the great renewal and revival that happened in the time of Nehemiah. Just several years down the line, there were problems and compromises. How can you and I learn from this and maybe look at some of the mistakes that they have made and have a check in our own lives, in a different context, of course, but actually have a check in our own lives and make sure that we don't repeat the same mistakes. The beauty of having the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit teaching us from the Scriptures is that very often we get to learn from the mistakes of the past. And this is one of those situations in Nehemiah's very ending of his journal entry about his life and ministry. And the first thing that you'll realize as you, as you look at this is that there are probably three areas of compromise that Nehemiah finds when he comes back. And the first one is the ignoring of the support that was supposed to be given to the Levites, verses 10 to 14. And this would have been a, a, a very difficult situation because the Levites were supposed to be the servants of God, ministering and encouraging the worship life of those who had come back into Jerusalem. And because the money was shrinking, this is the, 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 probably the alternative of somebody working in a church context. And because the, the giving isn't coming to support, they need to go out and find part-time work and increasingly spend more and more time doing the part-time work, doing, doing the ministry work that was initially being assigned to them. 
And you find that the Levites and the singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So what this tells you, reading in between the lines, is that actually the worship life was suffering because there was nobody there to actually enable people to worship God. Because the Levites, where are the Levites? They're all back to their own fields. Why? Because the generosity of the people had stopped to come in. And this would have been very problematic because this would have been an agreed generosity. This would have been part of the covenant that they had made with God. This wasn't just, oh, we're stopping paying the pastors. You know, and, and we, you know, we laugh. But one of the stories that I, is, is vivid in my memory, one of my colleagues was in a church setting and, and the church had a communion table. And he dared to move the communion table from in front of the pulpit to further down the side. And as a result, about 10 people got grieved and stopped giving to the church. Another situation that I remember is this habit that very often you find in churches where folk just come and fill the seats at the back and don't want to sit at the front. And that's okay if it's the size of a congregation like this. If it's an evening congregation with 20 people and you've got 10 rows empty and 20 people sitting on the back rows, it's odd, to say the least. So my friend uh, was very smart. I mean, he encouraged them to come forward and nothing was working. So in the end, you know what he did? He took the chairs and he left 20 chairs to the front. And basically the people did the same. They said, we're going to stop our giving and tithing to the church as a punishment. So there's a way in which sometimes that kind of control can happen. Well, this wasn't the situation here. The situation here is that they agreed this was not in between the Levites and the people. This was in between God and them. They agreed to give for the Levites, but the agreement was with God. And that would have grieved God's heart. And that's why Nehemiah reacts to this. It wasn't just a practical problem that affected their worship life and their devotional life. And you can see the link in between all these things. You, you, you know, the, the stopping of the giving for the Levites, not keeping the Sabbath, and intermarrying. There's a link in between it all. It's all to do with worship. And basically, Nehemiah comes and rebukes them for that. Why did he do it? Because they became greedy and selfish, which is our very natural instinct. We'd rather, you know, spend some money on ourselves very often, getting an upgrade on something or getting an extra holiday or getting an extra something else or getting a better label on the clothes that we wear than to give to a cause that isn't about us. It's our human, fleshly, natural instinct. Generosity isn't something that we're born with. I mean, there might be some people who are a little bit more generous than others, but... Generally speaking, we have this bent towards greed and selfishness in us. So they probably had gone back, forgotten the covenant they've made with God, and had gone back to actually rebuilding their houses, which is understandable because obviously they would have been in ruins. So they, they could have even said, hey, you know, we've given a lot to the building of this wall. Now it's time to look after number one. That's probably the scenario of what was happening. So that's why when Nehemiah comes... He sees this out. And I love the fact that he has courage and he addresses it. This is good leadership. This is good leadership. In fact, yeah, we probably kind of wince a little bit at some, some of the strength of Nehemiah's leadership. And, and, and I, I, I dread to think what people like Nehemiah and 
The Apostle Paul, if you read the letters that he writes, strong letters that he writes to some of the churches, what they would face today if they were leaders in ministry. So he says, verse 11, I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. And then all Judah brought tithes of grain, new wine and oil into the storeroom. And he put some very trustworthy people in positions to administer this. I love the fact that he had the courage to address it. And then he was very strategic about solving the problem. He didn't just cause a fuss, you know, cause some outrage publicly saying, guys, what are you doing? He also suggested to them, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to go back to our own agreement that was part of the covenant and begin to give and restore the giving for the Levites. And the motivation was not just a pragmatic one. It had to do with worship. I love his question. Why is the house of God neglected? His question was, why have you stopped giving? Why are you spending so much on your own house? Why are you not paying the Levites? No, the question is one that is devotional and God-centered. Why is the house of God neglected? And therefore, they reacted and responded to that. And that was the first, first challenge, ignoring the support of the Levites. The second one was ignoring the Sabbath. If you look at verse 15 onwards, you find that he, he reacts to what he finds. And again, it's disturbing because he says, In those days I saw the men on Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing the grain, loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And then he sees also men from Tyre who were on the coast. They, they, they would have been the, the, the Philistines on the coast who were coming into Jerusalem bringing the fish and then getting all sorts of other merchandise and selling it on Jerusalem. So the, the whole thing is a mess. There's no, no, no talk of keeping the Sabbath. The, the Sabbath was supposed to be the time when people laid everything down for two things. One, to rest, to have this rhythm of work and rest that God commanded based on what God had done at the creation of the world, but also to worship, which was again linked to their identity. So that's what you do on the Sabbath. You rest and you worship. And instead, they were working. They were working. Why? Again, probably materially motivated. We can make more money. Another day of business, more money. More money, bigger houses, and nicer wheels. (laughs) Or whatever they had in those days. You know, just uh, some nice alloys on the chariots. More work, more money, more resources. Another holiday. And they just work harder. And it's disturbing as well because the Sabbath was meant to be a sign for the nations. Pointing towards God. It was part of their spiritual identity. So again, who's calling the shots? It's it's the people from Tyre. It's the pagans who are coming and bringing their stuff. And instead of the people in Jerusalem, the Israelites being a witness and an example and communicating a a new message to the world around them, they blended in and actually took in the values of those that they were supposed to have an influence upon. And this is why the Sabbath is a big deal. And again, he challenges it. He says, what is this wicked thing you are doing desecrating 
the Sabbath day. Same thing that he does. One is he addresses the problem verbally and he challenges them. And he actually explains to them based on both theology and history. So he says, didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all the calamity upon us and the city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So he's saying, have you not learned anything? We've been in this situation with the broken walls not so long ago. History is quite short. And this all happened because of what you're doing right now. Have you not learned? Are you not getting it? Did you not see where this is going to lead us to? And then again, he's very practical about it. And he makes some changes. And I love that kind of leadership. You can get people in leadership coming forward and ranting and raving and complaining and moaning and causing loads of stir. But they don't do anything about it. He has a solution. Because that's the way Nehemiah works. He's very pragmatic about it. So you saw what he did. You know, he stationed some of his men. He closed the doors. I can imagine the furore that that created. You know, in the whole, you know, people were coming to sell. It's like gates are shut. Like people are going, what's going on? We want to sell our stuff. Fish is going to smell. It's all going bad. What, what, what are we doing right now? Come on. Open the doors. And Nehemiah's kind of going, get off. It's the Sabbath. And people were trying to probably bring their tables out to sell stuff. And Nehemiah's trusted men, you know, and as I said to you, you kind of get the hint, you know, with the laying on of hands. is the kind of different laying on of hands. People were probably going, kind of, get away, you know, go back home. It's the Sabbath. You're not selling anything on a Sabbath. It's just not going to happen. And some people were left outside sleeping. And even to those, he's saying to them, don't let this happen again. He's very pragmatic about it. Because this was a big issue. And again, it was about worship and identity. And those spiritual changes had to happen. And again, it's spiritual because it says in verse 22, Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates. That's interesting. So this is not the heavies, unless some of the Levites were heavy. But these are not the heavies. These are the worship leaders. But he's saying, you guys, as a sign that this is about worship, this is about God, this is not just an administrative measure. This is about God. You're going to go and guard the gates and keep the Sabbath holy. And then the third area is the ignored separation. That's probably a little bit more complicated for our day and age because it could be very easily misunderstood and misconstrued. But basically, he's saying, reading from verse 23, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them and beat some of them, pulling their hair. This is a huge issue. This would have been uh, uh, the ignorance of separation that God had commanded. This, by the way, this has got nothing to do with xenophobia and racism or the Jewish people being against any other people. This has nothing to do with, with our day and age understanding. It's really important to understand the context of what is happening, because otherwise it's probably strange, uh, strange to us, and probably it seems to be wrong. But here, it's all about spiritual influence. It's nothing to do with uh, your ethnic background. It's about spiritual influence. And he's explaining really clearly that this had happened before in the life of Solomon. Solomon was uh, 
King David's son and the smartest man that probably had ever lived with the most incredible assets of both power and wisdom at his disposal. He, he would have been at a pinnacle of Israel's uh, well-being from all points of view in terms of the legacy that his father David left. And when he dies, it ends up being an absolute mess and leads to the divisions of the kingdoms, the two kingdoms, and just a mess that follows on for many, many years. Why? Because Solomon, with all his wisdom and all the legacy that he inherited, the great legacy that he inherited from his dad, he ended up marrying foreign women, many of them. Some of them concubines, some of them wives, a huge number. And the problem was that those women began to exert an increasing influence on Solomon. So Solomon didn't just have these women who happened to have their own faith in his house, but also those women were women who were pulling him away from his relationship with God and denting at his identity as the king of God's people. And before long, he began to probably offer sacrifices to all the idols that his wives had, and that led to the fall of the nation. And that's why this is a huge issue. That's why Nehemiah is so angry. That's why he's reacting in probably not the most pastoral way. Uh, I've, see, I've, I've actually seen, I've, I've sat as a, as a 14-year-old in a church meeting where the pastor was grabbed by the hair by um, one. Yeah, my, uh, my, my church meetings growing up were very eventful, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, so this, this was the choir director grabbed hold of the pastor. You know, he had long, longish curly hair. and They had an argument and grabbed him by the hair. But it's, uh, it's rare, rarely seen in church context, this kind of church discipline. But this, is, I mean, we're reading this and we're thinking, whoa, that is really intense, really intense. I mean, you probably end up in prison, not just sacked, for doing something like that as a leader. But it was the fact that he'd seen the damage that this had gone, done for many, many years to the nation of Israel. And he's seeing it reoccur. And he's so angry. And he's so heartbroken about it. And again, he addresses it. Because they were mixing up the values. And, and, and you know what it's like. I mean, you put it in a modern day context. You know, you, you end up marrying somebody who has a different faith. You know, and different convictions. And a different philosophy in life. And as soon as you have children. And as soon as those children begin to get through the process of development, you will begin to have different views on how you do things. And that will end up being very complicated and difficult because the influence will come in there. And he knew that those people were going to be influenced by those foreign women and their identity would have been eroded. And also there's this little aside right at the very beginning we didn't read in chapter 13 where uh, Tobiah the Ammonite, who'd been an enemy before, suddenly gets given this this room in the house of the Lord. I mean, talk about real dodgy compromises going in there. I mean, this man had been all along, and there had been, a, 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 you need to delve deeper into the history of conflict between the Israelites and the Ammonites, but Tobiah himself had always stopped the rebuilding of the wall. And suddenly, Nehemiah comes back and he finds that Eliashib had given him a room in the house of the Lord. That's a dodgy influence. It's almost like we're setting up a room for tarot card readings, you know, in the new building. Ain't going to be happening. <laughs> I'm glad you said that, Stuart. <laughs> but that's the equivalent. 
that's the equivalent. You know, it's like renting the, a, a room for, you know, necromancy and speaking to the dead and weird stuff that, that is going on around. That's the equivalent. And Nehemiah comes back and he says, what have you done to this place? How can you allow this man? This is, this is a, a not separation. You're not meant to have these things going on. And he kicks Tobiah out of that house and he kicks all his stuff. I can imagine throwing it out on the street. And he says, there you go. And he has obviously Eliashib, who's one of the, their own people, who's a traitor. And again, that can happen very often because separation is being ignored. Three different areas. I mean, frankly, not all of them exactly and directly connecting with us. Areas of compromise. But actually, if you peel back the layers, they all do have a connection with us too. But the one thing that is sure, it's all about worship and identity. And here is the question I'm asking as I'm looking at this, this sort of horror ending if I'm honest. I mean, it gets redeemed because Nehemiah comes and does those changes. But it's really disappointing. It's really deflating. You, you want the, the, the book to end up on a high with Nehemiah coming back and finding that they're, they're even better than they were when he left them. That's not the case. So how can we avoid that? Is we need to keep on going with our obedience to God. We can't let our guard down. And maybe look at some of those areas of compromises they had and ask ourselves some questions that would be pertinent to us. But it's ultimately about worship and about identity and about obedience. But here are the three questions that I think would be helpful to us. What role does Sunday... Now, that's really great grammar, that is. It's brilliant. <laughs> play in your life. Uh, I'll just blame it on autocorrect. That's the easiest thing. Or pull the foreign card, you know, because that works as well. I'm not sure that works anymore. Yeah. What, what role does Sunday play in your life? I mean, this, this is a bit of a taboo discussion nowadays, right? Seriously. Because we've gone so far and we've probably had the excesses, you know. Some of you have lived 40, 50 years ago. Not many, but 40, 50 years ago through the excesses of, you know, Sabbatarian Christian views that were incredibly strict and very, very difficult. But you know what we've done? We, we've, we've gone from, from that to, to, to asking no questions about Sunday at all. And having no problem living, you know, and, and you see particularly in the North American con- context, you know, where people are almost saying, well, Sunday is a, is a day for the family, so we're going to have church on Saturday instead. Or we're going to have church on Wednesday instead, because family has to come first. And my kid's playing, you know, uh, American football, and my daughter is doing ballet on a Sunday, and um, I, I want to have a party and a barbecue with my friends. And it ends up, you know, kind of with, there's never even a question. So I don't want to set out any rules, but I want to ask the question, what role does Sunday play in our life? Uh, what role does Sunday really, what, what should it be about? Should there be something of the Sabbath that is still there? And my answer would be yes. I think the principles behind the Sabbath in terms of rest, and worship should be there. How that's exercised is different. Some of you might see me in Tesco afterwards, you know, just to keep up with my, uh, you know, kind of not being a Sabbatarian in that sense. So I don't have a problem if I need to buy some milk. I don't have a problem in going into Tesco on a Sunday. So I'm not like that. But will I go to watch Villa on a, on a Sunday instead of coming to church, even if I wouldn't be the pastor of the church? No, I wouldn't. Would I watch England playing in the World Cup final? 
on a Sunday instead of coming to church? No, I wouldn't. So that would be the way I'm working this out. I mean, you need to kind of explore this, but ask the question, should something about our worship and our priorities, even with regards to Sunday, say something to the community and the world around us? It's funny, isn't it? We, we, we want to change the world. We want to influence the world. But it's funny how we're not even willing to pay a price ourselves sometimes to set that example. I'll leave that there. Second question. Who is influencing you? In, in that context, it was the men that were being influenced by the foreign wives. I mean, I, I, we live in that kind of a situation where we can't go with that necessarily. But we want to ask the question, are there any influences in our lives? Social media. Friends. People that we look up to and we admire. Even from the Christian context, you know, it's a free-for-all now. I can go and, and, and type into YouTube or go on Instagram, uh, you know, and those cooler, way cooler than me, uh, look on TikTok, and find all sorts of teachers, pastors, churches, services, Bible studies, everything that you want, the myriad of things. Are they all good? Are they all helpful? Who's speaking into your life and who's influencing your thinking? How does that work? And it could be both Christian and non-Christian. But that's a good question that we need to ask ourselves. Who is influencing you? Because for them, it was a toxic influence of those foreign women with their foreign gods. They were actually undermining the spiritual identity that they had. Third question, how generous are you? And I love the way George Mueller rephrased that question. Because that's a tricky question. <laughs> How generous are you? Yeah. And he rephrased it, in a, and I'm paraphrasing, in something like this. It's not how much I give to God, but how much I keep for myself. You know, kind of, who, who gets the most? Is it God or me? Do I make the difference between wants and needs? And probably for me, the most important issue is this. Am I investing into selfish things that are for here and now, or am I leaving a legacy that lasts into eternity? That's the question. Because you and I would know, I've been to a funeral on Friday, and, and, and certainly I, I didn't see, you know, going down in, in a hole, a house or a car or a big holiday home. No money. Nothing went. It's just a person in a casket. Four bits of wood. That's it. Nothing is taken with you. But for those of us who know Jesus, there is such a thing called treasure that Jesus talks about. He talks about this treasure in heaven. And he's saying, where are you gathering the treasure? You can gather treasure on earth or treasure in heaven. There's only two alternatives. There's no, no, no third way on this one. So therefore, there is such a thing that we can gather treasure in heaven. And while we may be going empty-handed and empty-pocketed in that hole in the ground, in a wooden box with four walls, there could be something that is invested in, 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 in eternity, something that when we go and see Jesus face-to-face, -face, it will be there. And credited to us. Why? Because instead of spending selfishly on ourselves, we selflessly spend 
to see other lives changed. To find Jesus, to meet his love, and be changed by him. Investing in eternity. How generous are you? Let me finish with some verses that uh, we've got on the screen as uh, the band comes up. Some verses I think are helpful for us as we process this. Paul reminds the church in Corinth, he was very tempted to actually compromise these words. Don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Romans 12.2 Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And here is the hope. As we are trying to avoid those compromising situations and as we're crying out for God to renew us, this is Jesus' promise, Philippians 1.6. I am certain, Paul is saying, that God, God who began the good work within you, will continue to work his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ returns. So while we strive to live those lives to please him, we're encouraged that we don't do it in our strength, but it is him who works in us. Let us stand together.